continuing our study of Ephesians. I love that song we sang a couple songs ago. Um, I've, I've not heard it before. Uh, I have resurrection power living in me, Jesus. Um, it's really right out of Ephesians. Uh, one of the, the passages we looked at a couple weeks ago uh, that celebrates that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we have that same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave. That that power, now if we are in Christ, that power dwells within us. And we're in Jesus, and, and Jesus is in us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And it just changes us. We have freedom. We have power. We have this placement of being in Jesus Christ, which places us already in ways that are completely mysterious, already at the right hand of God, seated with Jesus on the throne. So Paul, in his letter uh, to the Ephesian church and the others who would have received this letter, uh, begins exploring what does it then look like for us to be the transformed people who are in Christ and have this resurrection power. And he begins really writing what it is, and, and, and beginning last week and this week, as he really starts saying, listen, you've got to pursue unity. You've got to be a group of people that are forming one body with all your diverse backgrounds and all of your diverse gifts. You come together, and you keep your diversity, but you become one unified people. And he begins talking about what that looks like. And, and as we move into the second half of Ephesians 4 and, and, and 5 this week, uh, he's going to talk about the very real day-to-day -day implications of how different your life should look if you are, in fact, one of the people that is filled with that resurrection power in Christ. And, and I don't know, you know, my kids don't watch commercials as much as I had to as a child. They're used to being able to just skip them or, you know, fast forward on the, the YouTubes and the streaming Netflixes and the stuff. And they're able to skip commercials, but, but back in the day, we all had to watch a lot of commercials. And, and, you know, one of the commercials that would always catch your attention is the weight loss or exercise video commercials, right? And there's one thing that they always want you to see. It's the before and after shots. The before and after shots. Um, one of my favorite comedians likes to joke that, that he'd look at the P90X videos and he's like, I don't want to be a Navy SEAL like the guy in the after shot. I just want to look like the guy in the before shot. How do I get that kind of health? So the before and after shot. But if, if you can imagine watching one of those diet or exercise video commercials and they put up the before shot and you go, oh man, that person really needs to get healthy. And they put up the after shot and they look exactly the same. It would be the worst-selling diet product of all time. Uh, the commercials would be great. Uh, try this diet. You can eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, exercise as much as you want. This is what you look like before. You look exactly the same after. Congratulations for only three easy payments of $9.99 a month or whatever. Uh, no one would be interested in a diet that didn't have results, that didn't transform you or cause you to look different. And so it's no surprise that the world is not really interested when there's so many Christians today who say you should become a Christian because you'll get the resurrection power of being in Jesus Christ and he will transform you and you will be completely different. And they look at us and they think, I know your before photo. And if this is your after photo, you haven't changed much. I'm not interested 
and what you're selling if the before and afters don't look different. If you're not, in your own life, evidence of the transforming resurrection power of Jesus Christ, then why would I want any part of what you're telling me about and sharing with me? I'm not interested in that. We think so often that, that the world is not interested in Christianity uh, because it's a hard teaching. I think as often as that might be true, I think it's equally true or maybe even more so that the world is not interested in Christianity because we don't live it out in a way that shows that it's different. I think the world is interested in doing hard things to improve themselves and be transformed people to make themselves into to a better version of themselves, but there's not much evidence in some Christians' lives that that happens, and when the outside world sees that, it's really easy to walk away from faith, to walk away from the commitment to Christianity. And I think sometimes we get into this, this situation because we have this expectation, because of our very, very high view of baptism and conversion, that we have this expectation that when you get baptized and you get saved, we expect a light switch to go off. I once was lost in sin, but Jesus Christ came in. And now a little drop of heaven filled my soul. I'm a totally different person as a result of my baptism and my conversion and being placed into Christ Jesus. Is that true? Yes. And yet, not yet. We sing, I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And, and we, we go back to that moment that we, were, we became in Jesus Christ through our baptism and through, through grace by faith. We become in Jesus Christ. There are things that in that moment change dramatically. We go from outside of Christ to inside of Christ. We go from lost to saved. We go from separated from God to indwelled with God's spirit. We go from, from being just ordinary people to having resurrection power of Christ living in us and, and empowering us. Those things change immediately and dramatically. But then Paul also writes in the New Testament to some of these churches, he says, listen, I'm still giving you milk because you're not ready for the hard stuff. You're not ready to chew meat yet. He says, you're not ready to, to have the real food of faith. I'm just giving you the easy stuff. He writes about the fruits of the Spirit. That the Spirit dwelling inside of us starts to, to rub off on us the character traits of God who's living in us. So that we, like God, become people that are characterized uh, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, the, the fruits of the Spirit, that these things begin growing in us over time. It's not immediate. You don't come out of the water and immediately become more patient. Patience doesn't work that way. But you do over time have, have God who is the good potter shaping and molding you to become more patient and more loving and more peace-filled. And the character traits of God begin to produce in our lives a transformed person. God's greatest transformations happen over time. When we open ourselves to habits that enjoin our life to what the Spirit desires to do in us. And so you've got a choice every day that, that you can either, in your walk with the Spirit, you can either put up your sails and allow the Spirit to really get you where you need to go, or you can take the sails down and put down an anchor, and the Spirit's still blowing in your life, you're just not really going anywhere. 
You have that choice. And the choices that you make on a day-in and day-out basis are going to determine whether the Spirit is able to really grow you where God wants you to go or whether the Spirit is in you and moving and you're just reluctantly refusing to go where it wants you to grow. Those choices are there for us. God wants to produce growth and transformation in us, but so often we're unwilling to do the work of partnering with him to allow that to happen. In Ephesians 4, Paul really starts to write, and as we're reading through this, I want you to be allowing the scripture today to serve as a mirror for you. And he's going to say over and over again, here's his his formula that he's going to use, um, that instructions for Christian living, he's going to say, you used to have this character trait, but if you're in Jesus Christ, you're going to start to look more like this over here. You used to have this character trait, but now because of, of Jesus, you're looking very different. God's growing up in you something that is a very different kind of person than you used to be. And I want you, as we're reading through these and talking through these today, to be looking into the mirror of this scripture and evaluating yourself and saying, is it true that I am less of my old self and more of my new self as a Christian today? And if I'm not, why do I have my anchors down and my sails down so that I'm not going where Christ is leading? So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed." That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and, taught, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather 
thanksgiving. For this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Everything that is illuminated becomes light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. After that, and we'll get into this next week, Paul's going to teach on how Christian households and families should look different from the world. But in this passage that we're looking at today, all of these descriptions of how you used to be this and now you should be that. And you have to look at it as these pairs because he pairs them in ways that are very intentional. And it's almost diagnostic and medicinal in how he's dealing with it. The treatment deals with the sickness. There, there is something between the instruction he gives second that helps you heal the problem that you had first. So when he says, uh, don't lie anymore, he says, don't lie anymore. He then says, because you need to tell the truth because we're all members of one body. And so there's this, this idea for Paul that your truth telling is connected to your being a brother or sister with the person who you're speaking to. And it's kind of interesting, his idea, and this is true of the ancient world, uh, you don't lie to your siblings. You may lie to foreigners, you may lie to strangers, you may try and manipulate them to get ahead. That is not unexpected, but you don't lie to your siblings. And so Paul, when he says you have to tell the truth, he, he connects that to this idea that if these people are in Christ and you're in Christ and we're all God's adopted children, they're your siblings and you don't lie to your family. So tell the truth. He says, don't get angry. Don't lose control of your temper. And he, said, he gives the advice, don't let the sun set on your anger. Well, there's such wisdom in that. And it's not always possible. Um, there's times that someone says, you know, I'm mad and I want it to get it worked out. And they want to try and hold you hostage with their anger so you can't go to sleep. Uh, and so well, we've got to work this out before we go to sleep. Okay, you can't hold someone hostage with your anger. But it does have this idea in the teaching, while not literal, that you shouldn't just let your anger fester for a long time. Because what happens is that anger that begins festering in you gives Satan a foothold in your life. 
The ability to get a step up in, in you and start having his way with you so that he begins to get you to live the way he wants because you're letting anger control you and burn inside of you. And there's just some wisdom in the time element of anger being released. Uh, one of the rules we have in my household, and, and we talk about it in, in the office from time to time, is that no good comes from a letter that's longer than one page long or written after midnight. It's not good. If you're that angry that you can't sleep, that's the wrong time to go send someone a four-page letter of all your grievances. You're not going to fix it. And the reason that you're not going to fix it is that you think that anger is what's going to solve things, but really what you need is peace. You need to offer and extend forgiveness. And here in a moment when Paul's going to write that you need to let go of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, and malice, that you instead need to be kind and compassionate, forgiving as Christ forgave, he, he brings up anger again. Almost nothing else in this list gets brought up twice. Uh, sexual immorality and greed gets brought up twice in anger. We spend a whole lot of time in Christianity today worried about sexual immorality in the world and not enough time worried about anger because the anger is a cancer that is destroying churches from the inside out. And if we want to understand how to get rid of the bitterness, rage, anger, malice, and brawling that has begun to characterize some Christians, we do it by forgiving as Christ forgave us. Before we asked for it, before we deserved it, before we were taking steps in the right direction, Jesus said, I'll pay the price to work this stuff out. And he then invites us to forgive as he forgave. And, and for me, the most helpful definition of forgiveness is, is this, is that we need uh, forgiveness. When we need to get forgiveness, what we're doing is we're giving up our right, our just right, to get revenge on you. Because the reality is that we understand that when you wrong me, I have some innate belief that I have a right to exact revenge on you for what you did to me. Forgiveness is me saying, I release that right. I give it to you as a gift for the sake of our relationship and to let my anger go. If you're still angry about something in the past, what you're doing, whether you know it or not, is you're clinging to that right to get revenge on someone you're still mad at. Give it away. You're not going to miss it. I've never heard anyone say, I really miss back when I was angry all the time. Those were the good old days. Pat, have they, you ever heard it? Never heard it. But we sure act like we need it to feel better. He says, get, stop stealing. Instead, work, do something useful with your hands so that you can share what you've got with others. The antidote fixes the problem. If you go and do the work, you're going to have extra, and then you can share with others who are in need. You go from being someone who is in need to someone who is reducing others' needs. Paul continues to work through his vision of how transformed people should live. Don't be a gossip or have any unwholesome talk. Don't use your words to be destructive and tear others down. Instead, your words should build people up and be constructive. People should leave a conversation with you and say, man, I am better off for having talked to that person. That should be a goal of your conversations with other people, is that when you leave, they're thankful to God that you were able to visit with them that day. Not thanking God that you've left. 
You should be the kind of people who leave behind sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, for this is idolatry. It's an unusual description of those things. Idolatry is any time you find yourself worshiping something that is created and not the creator. Paul writes, stop being sexually immoral and pursuing impurity and being greedy. He identifies this as idolatry. And the way that he he loops greed in with these other things um, really kind of almost gives it the idea of lustful. That the greed might even be connected to sexual immorality, that if you're trying to take possession um, with, with lust, something that's not yours, it's, it's a kind of greed that's connected to the others. And, and I say that because he's looping these words in very thematically. And, and greed in capitalism and money and finances doesn't fit naturally with impurity and sexual immorality. But this idea of lustfulness, of greed in, in the area of sexual immorality is there. And he's saying, listen, if you're worshiping that which isn't yours and you're worshiping that which is created and not the creator, it's immorality and it is idolatry and you're going to be in danger of judgment if you don't get rid of this stuff. If you're being consumed by your desires, then you are not uh, worshiping God. It's inappropriate for God's holy and righteous people. So don't live that way. We've got to deal with those desires if we're going to pursue God over those things. He says, don't get drunk all the time. Don't get drunk on wine uh, because it leads to all kinds of debauchery. Uh, So often people are getting drunk so that they can be a little bit looser and do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And Paul is saying, that's exactly what you shouldn't be doing. If you need to go get drunk so that you can do something that your conscience would otherwise prevent you from doing or your comfort level would prevent you from doing, don't do that. God gave you a conscience to guide you, and the Spirit comes into us and and convicts us of sin. And if we're drinking so that we can get around that, we've got a problem. Paul says, don't get get filled with alcohol. Get filled with God. Get filled with the Spirit, which is going to come in and, and transform you. And if you do that, what's going to happen as a result is you're going to start singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs when you're together and when you're alone. You're just going to be filled with gratitude all the time, and you're going to become thankful because gratitude begins to become a a treatment and a medicine that people need when you're always consumed by what you don't have. Gratitude heals that. Thanksgiving is a cure for lust and desire for that which you don't have. Becoming aware of the gratitude that you have for the things God's already given you begins to treat that so that the treatment deals with the brokenness. This list is, and this is what I I hope you get today, is that this list isn't just about obedience. It's about healing your brokenness. And you could easily read this list and go, man, Christianity's got so many rules, and it's all about the rules, and I'm tired of being told how to live and how to behave. I mean, that's fine, but it's like going to a doctor, and the doctor's saying, here's the medicine you need to heal what is broken and dying in you, and you kind of go, don't you tell me what to do. Why do we reject God's good teaching and life-giving lessons and uh, love-inducing treatments for the brokenness and death that's in us? Why do we do that? During the time of the Crusades, when knights and, and Christians were called by the church, 
to go off to war for the Holy Lands to battle for that. And we don't, I'm not going to get into the theological whatever behind the Crusades, but there's these stories where these knights would go and get baptized before going off to the Crusades. And the baptism that they were undergoing was not for salvation uh, by grace through faith. What they were getting baptized for was to just symbolically say to themselves and everyone else, I fully commit myself to the cause and call of the church to go and do whatever God wants me to do, to sacrifice anything I need to sacrifice. And they would be immersed in water except for their sword. And they would hold their sword out of the water. And as they were baptized, their hand and their sword stayed out of the water so as to say, I will do everything and commit everything and be completely obedient to God. All of me belongs to him and will be obedient to him. But my sword is mine. This I keep control of. This is, is not God's. This remains under my control. And there's so many of us in our lives that when we look at this list of how God wants us to be living, have something that when we get symbolically baptized and committed to Jesus, and I don't mean the baptism, what I'm saying is in our life, there's something that we're holding back from God. What is it that you say, God, I give you everything that is in me is yours except for this? Is it your watch? God, you can have anything you want. Not my, you can't have my time. So your wedding ring, God, you can have everything you want, but you can't have my relationships. I'm doing those my way. Is it your job? God, you can have anything you want from my life at home, but my ambition and my career and the way that I operate in the workplace, that's mine. God, you can have anything you want except for this remote or my cell phone. They get my attention. My attention doesn't belong to you. Every single one of us has something that we're holding back, that we're telling God, this is mine and not yours. God wants a total transformation. And whatever it is that you're holding up here and saying, God, you can't have this, but you can have all the other stuff, is the anchor that is keeping the Spirit from being able to do the work that God wants to do in your life. And so as you go through this list and you allow it to be a mirror for your life this week, what I, I hope you're doing and what I'm praying for this church is that we're looking at this list and we're saying, okay, there is something on this list that I'm allowing to be the thing that I hold out of the water and I don't give to God. And that's the anchor that is keeping God from transforming you so that your after doesn't still look like your before. And then find some kind of a practice, uh, whether it's prayer or reading scripture or getting into this uh, Ephesians study and journaling through that, or whether it's having someone that, that you have faith conversations with on a weekly basis, or whether it's it, whatever it is, spending time in silence with God, getting to where you have intentional times of rest where you rest in God's presence. These practices, when done repeatedly, become the sail that's on our ship that allows the Spirit to push us towards growth. To with greater speed and greater efficiency get our after looking more like God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Gets us looking like people who are no longer drinking milk but are eating strong meat, spiritual food because we're growing up. Because we've gotten out of the way and we're letting God do in us and through us the stuff he needs us doing. 
what's the end? I need to land this plane, or I guess the ship would be a better metaphor to stay consistent. This week, what I would challenge you to do is go through this list and come up with one thing that you need to reduce in your life because it's unhealthy and find one thing you need to increase or start doing in your life because it allows God to produce greater change in you. Just one. If you do five, you won't do any. Pick one you'll do less of and one you'll do more of and start seeing if God won't stay faithful to produce in you something far, far greater than how you were when he found you. I don't think you'll be disappointed. If you need to respond this morning uh, to that message or any other, please come forward as we stand and sing.